this is Steve Wilmer, and I'm with Luke Wilmer, my co-host tonight. And welcome back to Restless, the podcast. You know, it's been a few weeks since we've been on, and you heard the story of Bob, which was incredible. But you don't like that word, do you? So I can't use incredible. So he was fantastic and story. We got some good feedback from Bob and his story, and it touched a lot of lives. And tonight we have a another guest that, you know, I'm really looking forward to. Because his story, I think, will reach to a whole different group of people who probably desperately needs to hear what he has to say. But you know what? If you're thinking that maybe you need to share your story, and you need to think about this, because your story is unique. It's like your fingerprints. And there's a lot of value in it when you can share it. And if that's something that's tugging at your heart, we would really encourage you to to write us, and you can do that at info at restlesspodcast.com. Or go to our website at restlesspodcast.com, and there's a section there that says, Tell Your Story. Why don't you drop us a line or two, and, and we can talk. And furthermore, you know, if there's something on your heart that has been aching, you know, we're, we're all ears. We'd love to hear from you and even chat about what's going on in your life. So, uh, Luke, you know, uh, Jared, our next guest, you know, he has got a really— cool story. And it's a challenging story at that, too. Can you share a little bit about that with us? So Jared's story is one of dealing with severe mental illness for virtually all of his adult life. And the challenges it presents just in terms of what that means for him in terms of how he fits into the world and his view on belief and how that interacts with dealing with the extremely unique challenges that someone in his position has to deal with that most of us are blessed to never have to experience anything like. Uh, Jared's, Jared's story is undoubtedly a very riveting one. You know, and Luke, that uh, as we introduce Jared to come in and take us by the hand, take us all on that journey that he's had for a number of years, you know, a lot of that story, or at least a portion that deals with mental health and some of the struggles that he has had with that. And it's going to be a fascinating exploration of where faith, mental health, and just what's been going on in his life intersects and where that journey is taking him right now. So having said that, Jared, would you just kind of jump in here and take us and all those who are listening tonight, today, whenever that might be, on your journey? Sure. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here. A um, little nervous, as I was saying before, but but definitely excited. Um, you know, I think probably the best start uh, would be at the beginning. Um, let's go all the way back uh, to my early childhood. Um, I, uh, some of my earliest memories um, were in the church. Uh, I was raised in the church, a Protestant Christian family. Um, And I particularly remember um, my family helped to build a church when I was young. Um, And even me at the age of probably like four or five, maybe, um, we had our plastic shovels to help them break ground. Um, And... My uh, recollection of of that time and of the of the church and of Christianity was simply that you know um, it was a happy family. Um, we knew everybody. Um, 
you know, everybody looked like me, sounded like me. Um, and so, you know, it was a, a situation where I looked forward to going to church on Sundays. I looked forward to going to church it, just in general. Um, it was a building that I felt, even at a young age, you know, I, I felt like I'd taken a, you know, uh, played an important part in building it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was there that, um, you know, my introduction to uh, religion uh, sort of happened uh, there and at home. Um, and, you know, I uh, some of my first memories are of being in church, particularly, you know, the music, um, singing. My mom is an accomplished vocalist. Uh, and I remember seeing her, watching her, you know, um, in the choir. And uh, I always wanted to do that. Uh, and, you know, listening to her sing uh, was really a, a powerful experience for me. And, uh, um, and that's from that point on, you know, I, I became uh, very interested in singing. And it was interesting that, you know, church was the one place that I heard my father sing. Um, and my father actually has a really good voice, uh, although he probably would never admit it. Um, and you would never hear him sing, you know, anywhere else. Um, and I probably, I don't think I've heard him sing for, for a long time, but, um, you know, it was something that stuck with me that, that, you know, this is something that is an important part of belief. It's an important part of religion is that expression, you know, through, through song. Uh, and, you know, the other memories that I have are, you know, like Palm Sunday, you know, and, and of course it's uh, great we get palms because now we can use them as whips to whip each other. Um, you know, I, I have uh, three siblings and I'm, at the time I you know, was the middle, middle child. Um, later, you know, my, my brother was adopted, um, my youngest brother. And, and, uh, and, you know, so, and I was the only boy um, growing up older sister, younger sister. And so, you know, I got to play the, the rascal, the, um, you know, the class clown. And that's a role that I, uh, but I also played sort of the mediator. Um, and, you know, as, as a kid, I, I was very, I was a very sensitive kid. Uh, I think if you spoke to my parents, um, and also probably most people who, who knew me when I was young, I was, I was a sensitive kid. I, you know, I didn't like getting in trouble. Um, I didn't like challenging the status quo at all. Um, I was, you know, fairly, you know, subdued, uh, in some ways. Um, and I, you know, as I got older, um, that stuck with me. Um, this, I guess, sort of, hesitancy to challenge authority and i think that you know that played a a big part over the next well the rest of my life up to this point but definitely um my time in in the church uh when i 
was uh, eight, my family moved, made a big move. Well, to me, it was a big move. I mean, it was really only, you know, about 90 miles, um, if that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a different state, you know, and so that was, that was big, you know. And we moved into a bigger house, um, new neighborhood, new friends. Um, and that meant, you know, a new church. And, uh, you know, we started off at a church which, uh, you know, was described I probably best described it as non-denominational. Um, we had been in a Presbyterian church before that. And obviously, you know, at a young age, I, I didn't know what that meant. Um, and I uh, I had originally, I guess I, I don't know if that's what they call it, um, but I was maybe baptized or, or dedicated um, when I was an infant because um, I think the Presbyterians, they don't do... In- infant baptism. Uh, uh, but when we got to this new church, um, you know, uh, there was the question of, do we need to get baptized again? Um, or do we need to get baptized um, in addition to what has already happened? Um, and we did. So I was baptized. Um, and at this church, uh, uh we met in a middle school, a middle school that I eventually went to. Um, so I think there was definitely some negative connections there for me moving forward, um, you know, as I became a teenager. But uh, one thing I remember very, very, very clearly um, was this feeling that um, I wanted to be treated like an adult. Uh, I felt that I had a decent enough understanding of, uh, of Christianity. Uh, and I was smart enough. I, you know, I, I was a gifted kid. I, you know, I was in the gifted program. Um, and so I knew I was not stupid. Um, and that may have gotten to my head a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I was tired of going to children's church. You know, I didn't, that was for kids and kids, you know, it was for my little sister, you know, she was, you know, five years younger than me. And I, I like, that's for, that's for those little kids. Like I want to be here with the adults learning with the adults and, you know, reading the Bible, um, listening to the pastor. I felt like I could follow what he was saying, um, what he was teaching. And so, um, around the time that I was, leaving or at the end of elementary school, maybe beginning of middle school, um, they offered a class at my church on creationism. And I, uh, I wanted to take it, but it was only offered to adults. It was an adult class. And my parents, they felt that I could handle it. And so they spoke to church leadership and they were like, yeah, let, you know, Jared, Jared can take it. You know, um, they didn't really feel that I probably would be keeping up, but, um, at least that's what I probably imagined. They were thinking, oh, well, he's like 12 years old. Um, he probably is not going to grasp all the concepts, but they gave us a book 
I don't remember what the book was called, but I read that book in like three days, and then I read it again. Um, and by the time the first class started, I was there with like questions. You know, I was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Um, and yeah, I think after the first, first or second class, the uh, instructor of the class was, I guess, was impressed with you know, the fact that this 12-year-old kid is asking these questions that nobody else is asking. Like, um, and I was, you know, I had expanded my research into other books, um, and I was reading well above, I guess, my weight class, so to speak. Um, I mean, even at that age, I was, you know, reading at like a 12th grade level, um, probably more like a college level. But um, so what that meant to me was that um, it started, it was the first instance where I challenged authority. You know, I challenged the status quo and um, I got a glimpse of what, um, you know, what that might look like in terms of um, what sort of information was available to me. And so that, looking back now, you know, that was sort of the, the beginning of the end um, for me in terms of uh, Christianity and my belief. Uh, because I went to uh, the pastor, I went to other adults, because I had questions. They, they were innocent questions, um, but most times people you know, didn't have good answers. I, I was asking questions that probably they had never thought of, um, or if they had thought of, they you know hadn't thought of them very deeply. Um, and I, at the time, you know, it, I don't think it registered, but there was this sort of, I guess, seed that was sort had been planted, um, and this feeling that uh, maybe these people who I want to be like don't have all the answers. And, and so, you know, as I transitioned into middle school, my family left that church and went to a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist. And uh, I was thrilled because my best friend went to church there. And um, him and I, uh, you know, we were, we were teenagers. So it was like, we go to church, that's where the girls are at, you know. Um, meet the girl, you know, the girl, we hang out, we get to hang out with girls. Um, and, um, and we kind of had the run of the place, you know, we get away with stuff because, you know, his father was one of the, one of the pastors (laughs) and, um, you know, so we, uh, it was actually something that I looked forward to, but not because it was, you know, any sort of. I wasn't like, ooh, I get to go read the Bible and, and uh, learn about, you know, God and Jesus. Um, it was like, oh, I get to hang out with my friend and, and look at girls and try to talk to them um, in really awkward ways. Um, you know, so I... Um, interestingly enough, when we got to the Baptist church, they have a different baptismal um, practice. Uh, they're... They do full immersion, and you have to be an adult. 
you have to be able to make a decision uh, to have that done. Um, and you have to have sort of, I guess, the, the wherewithal to make that decision. Uh, and that usually comes at, you know, adolescence. And I, so at the age of 13, I got baptized again. Um, my dad also had to get rebaptized. And I have this really clear memory um, because he was going to become a, in order to become, I guess, a deacon or a elder in the church, you know, it was important that he get baptized in the way that the church gets baptized. Um, the sprinkling, you know, doesn't work for the, for the, you know, the Baptists. <laughs> um, you got to go all in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Baptist. <laughs> so, um, the church uh, did it. They had a traditional service. It was an older church that had been built on who. So there was a traditional uh, church service, and there was what they called the contemporary church service. And they they had them in different parts of the building. Um, the so they did all the baptisms in the old part of the church. Um, and so you were up there, you know, in front of everybody, and and in order to get to the the pool, I guess, I don't know if that's what you call it, uh, I'm sure it has a technical name, but you had to like climb up backstage and then, you know, walk down these stairs and you had to be real careful because um, they're very narrow. And then um, my dad went before me and I was standing at these, the top of these stairs looking down at him in this pool and looking out over top of the congregation. And my dad's not a small guy. You know, he's probably like 225 at the time. I don't know what he is now, but <laughs> maybe more than that. <laughs> um, but um, the pastor was not, he was, a, he was a small guy. Like he was probably like five, seven, you know, like a buck 60 maybe. And I knew that my dad was worried because he is not confident around water. Uh, and and he uh, was worried that the pastor wasn't going to be able to get, <laughs> get him up out of the water. Um, and, and so I was, I guess, being slightly mischievous, like I was sort of hoping that that would happen. <laughs> Uh, and, and that is what happened. Actually, uh, I'm watching as my dad's getting dunked underwater and the pastor is like trying to, trying to lift. Nope, nope, nope. He's like planting his feet, spreading his feet out, like really got to get some like lever until finally, like my dad's like pushing off with like one hand to get himself out of the, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty hilarious for me. Um, so I don't actually remember my own baptism. I remember my dad's second baptism. Um, I think it was his second baptism. It might have been his third. I don't. I don't know. Uh, when you sh- switch around churches a lot, um, you end up with, uh, I guess, what it's a hat trick they call it in mm-hmm. hockey. <laughs> sure. So this is this baptism is the one you remembered. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I I had a perfect seat for the whole the whole thing, <laughs> um, and uh, and that you know. Uh, as much as, as I enjoyed that, it really, it was just another instance of, of where I, you know, was like, why, why? I was like, why do we have to do this? Again. Uh, uh, yeah. Why, why again? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he didn't have a good answer. 
um, other than like, eh, you know, that's just what they want us to do. Uh, other adults that I spoke to didn't have a good answer. Um, and I just sort of was like, hmm, that's weird. Um, you would think that once you do it, you do it, and that's it. Um, so these little tiny cracks started forming for me in you know the foundations of my belief. And by the time um, that I got to high school, I was I was very um, confused. I think that's happens for a lot of a lot of young people, but um, I was particularly confused about religion because I didn't see it in every, people's everyday lives. I saw, all I saw was the dogma. I didn't see people living their faith. Um, and I mean, you know, I didn't see it in my parents. I didn't see it, you know, like anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, that's challenging. Uh, I mean, well, I won't say it wasn't anywhere. I would say that it wasn't at the level that I thought it should be at. Um, there were a few people that I was impressed with. I was impressed with my older sister, um, who was about three years older than I am. And, and, well, she was three years older than me then. She still is three years old. <laughs> um, and so uh, she, was, uh, she was in high school. And I was uh, also in high school at this point. So I think she was a senior and I was a freshman, something like that. And my family decided that we're not going to be Baptists anymore. We're going to go back to the non-denominational church that we had left previously. And I was not happy about that um, because at least at the Baptist church, I could hang out with my friends. Now I got to go to this place where nothing is happening and I got to listen to all these people talk about the same boring crap. Um, and it was frustrating for me to see my sister and be part of a youth group um, and have these youth pastors, you know, sort of talking about um, all of these these ideas, uh, but they never really they really they never really connected with me. I knew enough about Christianity to know how to act uh, so that I looked Christian. And I knew the things to say. I knew how to pray. There were the, you know, people have these things that they say when they pray, um, the way you open a prayer, the way you close the prayer, certain, uh, you know, words and phrases. And by mimicking those things, people were like, oh, look how devout this this you know, young man is. And that was really sort of the schism <laughs> where I became two people, one person, uh, two that was, uh, that everyone in, in, in the Christian community and the church community could see me, uh, my teachers, uh, it was this good kid. And then, uh, the underside or the flip side of that was this other kid. Uh, who really just wanted to have fun. And um, and so, you know, in high school, I was introduced to a lot of different things. Uh, I was playing sports, and well, I'd always been playing sports, but um, 
you know, I was doing drama and like every activity under the sun. Um, and I was also introduced to drugs. Uh, it's the first time I smoked uh, cannabis or marijuana or whatever you want to call it. Um, was, uh, I guess I was 15 years old. And I mean, it was a very, very uh, meaningful experience for me. The first time I did it, I was like, this is it. I found it. Like, this is, you know, I'm having fun with my friends. Um, we're doing something unique. Uh, I feel connected to the world. I feel connected to the people around me. Things make sense. And uh, it also gave me kind of a little bit of a, a rush, like a thrill. Like, I knew I was breaking the law. You know, I knew I was doing stuff that that was uh, uh, would have been very frowned. <laughs> That's an understatement. Uh, would have been severely punished uh, if if my uh, family had uh, my parents had known um, about it. Uh, so you know, I I continued along that road of of two lives, and as I became more disgruntled, <laughs> I guess is a good word, um, with Christianity and with the church, my parents started to backpedal a little bit. Um, you know, I was allowed to listen to secular music, uh, whereas before I, I was not allowed to do that. I was allowed to like date, um, as bef before I wasn't really allowed to do that. Um, even though I didn't really go on any dates. Um, but, uh, you know, my, luckily, I guess you could say, um, something sort of stepped in, uh, something it was called an, it's an organization called Young Life. And when I say it stepped in, I mean that it provided a, an avenue for me to continue to act like a Christian and for my parents to be happy that that is what I was doing and for me to still be able to have a little bit of fun and hide all the other stuff that I was doing. Um, because if I got to be part of these various Young Life programs and I'm bringing in people, you know, other, you know, other students, my peers to various events and that kind of, you know, it was like, oh, look how great of a Christian this guy is. Like he's, you know, he's saving people. Um, and I just remember the first time that I was at a party in high school, you know, like a keg party, something like that. Although I don't think we had a keg. Um, somebody came up to me and they said, like, Jared, what are you doing here? Uh, and I was like, well, I'm, you know, hanging out, like drinking, smoking, like what, what does it look like? Um, and that person, you know, they were like, well, I thought you didn't do this kind of stuff. And then one of my friends walks over and says, yeah, Jared's a huge hypocrite. <laughs> and I was, yeah, like I, I sort of laughed at the time, but I, it also kind of like, you know, like somebody punched me in the stomach. I was like, yep, yeah, they're right. It wasn't a good feeling. Um, because I didn't really have like a good explanation. They, uh, you know, they, they had hit the nail on the head. Uh, and, uh, so I continued doing young life and, 
you know, that lasted all the way through high school. Um, and then something sort of new emerged around my junior year, uh, about the age of 17. Um, I joined the wrestling team and I'd never wrestled before. Uh, so it was challenging. Um, I played football. I was a starter on the varsity team. Um, so that was very familiar. I was good at it. I'd sang before. I was a lead in the musicals. I was in the two different, you know, choirs. But this was new. And it was challenging. And, um, and the anxiety of... Uh, competing in a individual sport uh, is is very different. You know, I played baseball. There's nine guys on the field. Uh, you know, played football. Eleven guys on the field. You're in a choir. You know, you there's always these situations where you're not the center of attention. Then all of a sudden, you know, except for maybe when you're playing baseball and you have to bat. But I was really, really good at baseball. So, um, so I. I get out, you know, in front of the the crowd um, uh, at a wrestling match, and and I'm not good. I think my my junior year, I was, I think I was like eight and fifteen or something like that. It's not just not good. Um, and there were times that like I would get out there and I would have like what I now know to be like, uh, you know, almost panic attacks. You know, where I would be incredibly anxious. And a couple times, um, I lost on purpose. Uh, I just threw the match so that, like, you know, I could get pinned in the first 30 seconds and just leave. Just get it over with. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, um, uh, so I started to have problems with, you know, energy level. Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't want to go to, to school in the morning, um, I uh, I think there there was one time that I remember that like I didn't want to go to school and normally my parents would just force me they'd be like you got to go and I would go um, and then there was this one time that I I just was like nope I'm not going uh, my mom tried to force me and then finally of course she called in the big guns and called my dad and even all his yelling and screaming I was like I'm not going um, so he gave up and then I guess you know, around, around about lunchtime my mom came down again I had a room in the basement and, and she would sort of quietly knocked on the door and said uh, I'd like it if you would go to school I think you can go to school now okay I'll go um, and I mean that was really the first time now, now what I know now is that I, I was beginning to experience depression and uh so junior and senior year a couple little you know bouts of mild depression anxiety uh no clue that that was what was happening and you know senior year it's like oh what do i do now everybody's planning to go off to college or do this or that uh and i'm sitting there thinking to myself i don't want to do any of these things I just want people to leave me alone. 
Yeah. I'm tired of being in front of the in front of everybody. I'm tired of being, you know, the star. I'm tired of tired of all this stuff. Like I'm tired of having to perform for people. Uh, even like I'm tired of you know performing, pretending that I'm a Christian. I'm I'm tired of all that stuff. And my parents were like, nope, you got to go to college. <laughs> and so um, I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm gonna stay in state. And so, uh, you know, I'm uh, going to apply to three different schools, University of Virginia, Virginia Tech, and James Madison University. And uh, I, um, I looked at the requirements um, for the application for UVA. I, you know, backing up a little bit, I was a good student. You know, I wasn't a great student. I had like a, I think I had like a three, two, but I had like ridiculous amount of extracurriculars. I had a really high SAT score. Um, so I, I probably could have gotten into all three of the schools. Um, but I looked at the UVA, the UVA, uh, application. They were like, you got to write this, I don't know, some, some ridiculous, like, you know, 10,000 word essay or something. I was like, nope, not doing that. Um, plus I didn't want to go to the school where my older sister was at. Uh, just was very, we would go to the football games. It was very pretentious there. People, people would ties the football games. And I was like that, I just can't do that. Um, <laughs> and so the, the tech application, um, I got about halfway through and um, ended up finally finishing it, but there was a good amount of stuff that was um, optional. Highly recommended, but still optional. So I didn't do that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and obviously I didn't get into either of those two schools. Um, JMU was the only application that I actually fully finished because it was the um, it required the least amount of work. Got into JMU. Uh, I was thrilled about that because I, I was getting concerned about being one of those people who didn't do anything after college. Like, I didn't want to be like a loser. These are people I had in my head. I didn't know who they were, but I, uh, so August. 2002, um, I head to JMU, and everything changes. When I got there, it was the first time that I had lived with people who weren't my family members or, uh, you know, never spent time, extended periods of time with people who, you know, that I... I wasn't close friends with, and pretty much all of my friends I would have considered family uh, growing up. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, you are thrown into a environment that is very different with new people, and you're put under the pressure uh, and stresses of you know, new responsibilities. You have to act like an adult and get your food and do all these sort of things that I didn't have to do growing up. But 
the biggest, one of the biggest things that was difficult for me was I was suddenly surrounded by people who didn't believe like I believed. They didn't believe like my family believed. They didn't believe like any of the churches um, that I believed. And I'm not saying that there were no Christians at JMU. There actually were a lot. And I, you know, joined an organization called InterVarsity. And I continued to be involved with Young Life at the collegiate level. Um, But um, the variety of background, religious background experience um, was much more varied. And as I interacted with people, I remember this one uh, woman her, or girl or here student. Her name was Thalia, and she was very cute. And but she was very um, about as far removed from Christian as you could get, I guess, in the direction of um, maybe a blend between like spiritualism, like sort of almost like a new agey kind of thing. And and uh, and so that was very frightening but also appealing to me because it was something different it was a different perspective and you know I met people that I would never have interacted with I met Muslims I met Jews you know I met I'm and they were my friends um it was the first time that I was that I interacted with gay people uh and I realized that they were people and it was hard for me to reconcile uh, what I had heard and experienced from uh, the people that I had known growing up um, in the church, how they treated these different groups of people, how they referred to them. Um, And so I continued to be involved in a small group um, with a couple other I think it was probably about eight guys, and we had a leader. I think it was through InterVarsity. Uh, and then I was also in, in the Young Life leadership training program initially. But by the end of the first semester that I was there, um, oh, the other big thing is that I started drinking, like, heavily, um, which is uh, um, also, a, a, you know, an important part of this story. Um, there so i was continuing to move away from who i had been um and i was moving towards something i didn't know what it was um i just knew it wasn't what i was and i i was happy with that because i didn't want to be a hypocrite i realized that i was being a hypocrite Um, and I also realized that most of the people that I knew were hypocrites. I didn't want to be like them. So I continued to move away from the church, uh, and from Christianity. I remember, uh, there was a InterVarsity retreat that I went on where we went off into... Uh, JMU is in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. It's a very beautiful area. And 
within an hour you can be up in the mountains or at beautiful caverns and so we were up you know up in the hills and at this retreat and I had felt for a while that when I would go and I would sing or I would listen to messages or sermons or whatever you want to call them or I would read the Bible I didn't feel anything in it. and it was particularly alarming for me that when I was singing I didn't feel anything because that was the one thing that had always been the fallback. And so I was up in the hills with a bunch of other 18 to 22 year olds and we broke uh, and during this retreat and it was like, all right, go off in the woods. Well, it didn't have to be in the woods, but anywhere on the property, I guess. Um, and have, you know, the next hour, it's your time to uh, spend some time with God one-on-one, pray, walk, sit, whatever. Um, and so, you know, I, I found this trail, and I wandered off into the woods because I didn't want to be around anybody else because I was worried that if somebody was near me, they would distract me, and I wanted to be ultra focused because I was sort of in a moment of like I guess crisis you could say where um, I was I wanted to hear the voice of God but I I hadn't for a, a long time and so I sat down by this this path I looked around made sure that nobody was uh, coming, um, and I, I prayed, prayed as hard as I could, <laughs> and I gave God, I guess, this ultimatum, which I think a lot of people probably are familiar <laughs> with, is it's kind of like show up or I walk, and God didn't show up, so I continued. Uh, by the end of the semester, I stopped going to university, stopped doing, I dropped out of the Young Life thing, and, you know, that was a big deal for my family because Young Life was a part of my family background, our chem chemistry, I don't know what you want to call it, but um, we had a history with it. My parents did it. Um, a lot of other people in my family did it. Uh, and so when I dropped out of that, they were like, oh, okay. Um, so I go home for Christmas, and I think it's the first time that I don't feel at home. And I want to go back to JMU. I want to, uh, it's the first time that I, I'm actively uh, angry about, you know, having to go to a church service on Christmas Eve. I'm like, I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Why do I have to do this? 
and I know that, you know, I, I had not wanted to do those sort of things before, um, but I had gone along with, you know, gone with the flow. Because uh, it was important to my parents. I mean, I when I was a, a senior in high school, I, I, I had this sort of coming to head with my father. Where... We didn't really have a very good relationship. And I mean, he traveled a lot, worked very hard. I was angry at him, very angry at him. And I think one time he came down to talk to me and and I I told him that I told him to, that I hated him and I told him to go Believe himself, um, which, I mean, if you knew my family, that was unheard of. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he was really shocked, I think, by that. And we came up with this sort of agreement where I got to do what I wanted uh, as long as I did what my mom wanted me to do, which was go to church once a week. I was like, he was like, anything else? Do what you want. I had a, I had a basement entrance exit so I could just come and go as I wanted. Um, so, uh, finally, you know, fast forward back to, you know, my freshman year and I'm back home at Christmas and I don't have that you know, ultimatum over me anymore where it's like, you have to do this. So I was very bitter that I felt like I had to do it. I had to go, oh, I gotta go to church. And I had started to look like doing my research, you know, oh, the whole nativity narrative is bogus, blah, 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 you know. Um, and those were, you know, my first steps down the path of atheism. So when I get back from uh, Christmas break, I I uh, uh, I guess I had a very significant event that happened. So um, so I do have a friend, and I do um, mushrooms, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, with him. Which is uh, a psychedelic for the <laughs> listeners who are not sure what I'm talking about. Um, and it was a very powerful experience. It was very, very different from anything that I had felt before. Um, I felt more of a spiritual connection during that and in the immediate weeks afterwards than I had ever felt in a church setting. Um, But right around that same time uh, was my first major depressive episode. So uh, essentially I, for about, I guess almost like six to eight weeks, I would rarely get out of bed. 
Um, I didn't want to do anything. Um, I, I just wanted to sleep all the time. I was very, 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 very unhappy. I would get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I would get out of bed to go get food. I would get out of the bed to go uh, sing with my... Uh, I was in a, an acapella group with a bunch of other guys. It was, it was the only thing that I enjoyed doing. I also got out of bed to go party and drink, um, which those two things do not mix. Alcohol is a depressant. Very bad for people who have d- depression symptoms. <laughs> Um, so so by the end of the semester, I, um, well, I guess about, about halfway through the semester, I, um, my grades are terrible and I decide that I want to go on spring break. My friend who I sang with presented me an opportunity uh, to go to Miami, Miami Beach, uh, for spring break. Uh, For anybody who's between the ages of, like, 30 and 40, you probably remember MTV Spring Break. Um, So we went down, um, took the train. It was, or no, we didn't actually take, that was a different trip. Um, We took a minivan. We drove for, like, 11 hours. It was awful. Overnight, yeah. Um, and so we, uh, we got down there, and the re- only reason why this is an important part of the story is that, that one night we're out on the beach, uh, South Beach, Miami. Uh, it's beautiful. It's the star, you can see every star. Uh, <laughs> and there's this warm breeze coming off of the, uh, off the ocean, walking on along the sand and you can see the lights of the boats out on the water a couple miles off the coast and um you know we had uh, uh met these girls earlier we're like looking forward to hanging out with them later but we had some time to kill and for some reason um i don't know why it came up but I was explaining to my friend John um, how uh, I could swim out to the boats, which are probably two to three miles off the coast, if not farther, um, and not die. And he was like, no, you would drown. I was like, not only would I not drown um, swimming out there, I'll, I would come back and not, and not die. And he was like, no, that's impossible. I was like... He's like, how can you even know that? I was like, well, I'll tell you. So I took my toe or a stick or something, and I drew this line in the sand. And this is a lifeline, the average human being. And then at the end, or at some point in the, on the line, I drew a circle. And it's probably about like 12 inches in diameter. And I was like, this is the purpose of the average human being. And, uh, He's like, okay, just explain what you're, at all what you're talking about. But uh, so then I took two giant steps outward, and I draw this massive circle, hundreds of times the size of the circle, and uh, I was like, that is my purpose. 
Like it still doesn't explain what you're talking about. I was like, and I drew another line that cut across the lifeline. If I, if that, if that lifeline, if I never reach, you know, if I, if my life ends here, then that means I can't fulfill that purpose. So there's no way that I can die right now because I haven't filled that purpose. And um, I don't know, I can't remember how he reacted, but uh, but that that stands out in my mind because it became later it it became an example that I would use uh, when speaking to psychiatrists and other psychiatric professionals to explain why um, why I was ill. It was an example because it. It fits into the diagnostic criteria. Uh, so, um, flashback to JMU. Um, we come back, and the rest of the semester, you know, I'm still depressed. And I get to the end of the semester, and I failed every single one of my classes. Never done that before. And my parents, actually, my mom is coming down to pick me up get all my stuff, move out, go back home for the summer. Comes down and has no idea about any of this. And uh, I remember we we went and got lunch at the dining hall and her, after we had eaten, you know, my stomach was like, was, was killing me. Like I, like I knew that I was going to have to drop this bomb, you know, eventually because they're paying for my school and they're going to want to know what my grades were. And so we leave, we walk out of the dining hall down these stairs and this courtyard kind of area. And I, she's walking and I just kind of stopped walking and then just walked over and sat down on this, or like a stone bench. And I just burst out into tears. And she clearly had like no idea what was going on. Sat down next to me. Asked me wrong and I was explaining to her like what had happened. I was like, you know, I failed all my classes, failure. And And she wanted to get details, and uh, but I didn't. I was still very upset, um, and I started to tell her about how I felt, not about what had happened or the results of the semester, but about what you know, what I know now are symptoms. Um, and you know, neither of us had any idea what was going on. We didn't have any experience with it. Mental illness is funny like that. It just kind of kicks in the door sometimes. You know, you usually just kicks in the door and just is like, hey, uh, I'm here now. Um, I know you don't, <laughs> you weren't expecting me, but here I am. Uh, now you have to figure out uh, what's going on. So that summer, I... Um, went to a psychiatrist for the first time in my life. And it was a place 
uh, it was actually like right across the street from where one of my friend, like a couple of my friends lived in this neighborhood. It was just a very oddly placed building. Um, uh, it felt like it should have been like a, a historical building, like an, <laughs> um, and I don't really remember a whole lot other than they, they put me on something. I, I, I have I don't know. I've been on so many drugs. It's uh you lose track of them after a while. Uh I think I have a list somewhere. Everything that I've been on way too long. Uh so we thought that was like how it works. Like that's that's how medicine works, right? You know, that's how you're sick, you go to the doctor, here's your pill, you take the pill, you're better, right? No, that's not how it works. At least not with this. Um so I get back down to JMU um, because we're all assuming that everything's hunky-dory now. Um, stuff has been resolved. Uh, so I'm back to JMU. And, and, uh, and what happened the previous semester just repeats. Starts off okay, and as soon as stress starts building up, everything falls apart. Um, so uh, I ended up being at JMU for two and a half years, five semesters. I had three mental health withdrawals. And a mental health withdrawal is just simply an after the fact where they say none of your credits counted like you were never here. Which is helpful because if you want to come back, you know your GPA isn't totally shot um, from failing thirty six or forty five credits or whatever it is. Um, uh, but um, I never really took advantage of the resources that they had there. I you know I saw a therapist and uh, tried a different medication but um so when I was 21 I came or I was forced to uh to leave JMU which I was not happy about at all I guess I was 20 about to be 20. um I uh in the final moments of my time at JMU I was at a party and I uh, got into an argument with a guy in in my fraternity, and I pushed him, and he fell, tripped over a curb, and scuffed up his leather jacket and broke his digital camera. Um, obviously, you know, that doesn't sound very bad, um, but he pressed charges, and I got charged with uh, assault and battery and destruction of property. Although I didn't know it. So when I left JMU, went home to Maryland, I became a interstate fugitive. Um, didn't know that. Um, and I was away from JMU for about six months. And it was during that time that I really got into, like, hard drugs. Like, street drugs. First time I did cocaine first time I did ecstasy um 
did some other psychedelics. There's, it was not a very good time for me. And when I finally uh, went back to JMU, I went back to JMU um, not as a student, but just because I wanted to get away from my family. Uh, my mom and my dad and my family didn't understand really what was going on with me. And they wanted to know why I didn't want to do anything. So I got into an argument with my mom one day. And it was the only time I've ever told my mom to... Uh, well, I, I use a very bad word. And uh, I just threw a bunch of stuff in my car and just left. And I lived out of my car for a little while. And, but eventually found a place down in Harrisonburg where uh, JMU's at and um, decided that I was going to try to go to community college and get back into JMU. And that never played out. I worked a bunch of different jobs. I think I worked like seven different jobs in the course of a couple of months. And I still was not being treated for an illness that I had. Um, I was still barely unaware of what was going on. Uh, and it wasn't until I saw a psychiatrist in Maryland um, that the word bipolar got thrown around for the first time uh, when I was about 22. And he was going through, he was doing what they called an intake and asking questions like, do you ever feel like you're not, uh, um, like you don't want to do anything or you sleep a lot? Uh, and he was asking questions like, do you have any sort of, uh, family history of mental illness. I was like, yes. Uh, or, well, I let my dad answer that question with me because his father had some pretty obvious issues, although I don't know if they were ever diagnosed. But um, I... And then I remember this really clearly. That he asked this question... Said, do you ever hear voices or do you feel like you have a special connection with God? And I was like, yes, I have felt. And I immediately flashed back to that moment on the beach where I'm thinking to myself, God has a special plan for me. Um, I knew that I wasn't speaking directly with God not in like a conversational sense, um, but you know the that really stuck out of my mind. I was like, yeah, and I told him the story, and he was like, okay, and he kind of just took some notes, and at the end of it, he was like, I think you have bipolar disorder, and I was like, I think I have bipolar disorder. Um, so he put me on mood stabilizers, or a mood stabilizer called lithium. And 
I was on it for maybe a couple of months before I was like, mm, I'm, nope, not doing this. Lithium is a, uh, is a drug that has to build up in your blood stream, in, in, within, your, within your blood at, to a certain level for it to be effective. And, um, and it can cause a dulling, a mental dulling. That is something that a lot of people complain about um, who are on lithium or who, who take lithium for the first time. And a lot of people who are put on lithium are bright, creative people. I mean, that's kind of part of having bipolar disorder, usually. Um, they kind of go hand in hand. So it can be very frustrating when all of a sudden it's like somebody turns the lights out. And you can't do what you once did. And that's why, you know, bipolar disorder is hands down the, like, the number one illness that, that for where people stop taking their medication because they want to feel how they used to feel. Uh, even if it's bad, you want to feel fully. And I felt the same way. Um, and so I stopped taking my meds. Um, in, in some ways, is it like the deprivation is even worse? Oh yeah, most definitely. It's imagine like imagine as if you're an artist, right? And you have this amazing palette of colors that you get to work with. Mm. And and then one day somebody says, "Here's the two colors you get to work with." Like, you know, even if it was incredibly painful to work with all those colors before, you still want to work with them. So, so yeah, so I, I went off my meds. Terrible idea. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> um, I... I got uh, a lot of help. From my dad. He came through in a major way. I was struggling. I was still in Harrisonburg. And he said, Hey, let's start a business. Okay, great. Yeah. I was ready for any distraction. Something something else. And and so for I get I probably almost like six months maybe longer uh, I don't I don't know like he came down every weekend like three and a half hours every weekend and sp spent you know the weekend staying with me to keep me from doing anything really stupid I mean that was the first time my that was my around that age was my that I guess that time was uh, my first suicide attempt. Took a bunch of sleeping pills. Didn't work, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I I make light of this stuff. You know, when you've been living with it for this long, like you have to laugh about it sometimes. Um, so so he's coming down every every weekend, and 
And initially it was an idea of like doing real estate investment, uh, buying stuff, uh, buying a property, fixing it up, flipping it or renting it. And I would live there and be the landlord. And, and then, you know, my grandfather, um, my, my mother's father came to him with an idea for a business, business called uh, cartridge world, uh, printer cartridges. Um, uh, for all of you out there, don't buy anything from Cartridge World. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't buy a Cartridge World franchise. Um, so I don't even know if they're still around, but um, so we started this this up. I moved back to Maryland, and I got an apartment. He gave me a job. I got a salary. Uh, I got a new car. Um. And I reconnected with my cousin, um, which was great, but also probably terrible. Um, he, him and I are very similar. Uh, we tend to uh, amplify each other's problems. So as I'm trying to sort of be responsible and help my dad with this business, um, on the weekends and weeknight all the time, I'm hanging out with my cousin. Um, and I think between the two of us over the course of about a year, um, we were, I think, ar arrested like six times. <laughs> uh, always dumb stuff, uh, bar fights, driving drunk, uh, I stole a, stole a bunch of stuff from a 7-Eleven once. Well, I mean beer. It was beer. I stole beer. It was actually kind of a funny story, but um, there was an off-duty police officer standing right outside of the 7-Eleven. I was in flip-flops um, running out with two cases of beer. He just jumped on my back, choked me out. It was, <laughs> I didn't get very far. <laughs> um, so... I am uh, trying to start this business with my dad. And, and it was, I mean, this was like the boot camp for the friendship that me and my dad have now. Um, there are, there, 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 there's nobody else, like, other than maybe my mom, that I trust as much. He's... He has proved himself time and time again to be there um, for me, you know. And he's there, like, even if he doesn't know what to do. Even if he, there's nothing he can do. He's, other than just be there. Can't fake showing up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I am still doing drugs still drinking, I'm still doing all this stuff, and uh, just too much stress working with my dad because I'm feeling like I'm letting him down. And I'm not showing up to work, showing up hungover, still on drugs. Like it, He should have fired me about 100 times. Um, but, uh, so I, I, 
I decide that I, I can't deal with this. I got to do something different. So I, um, I decide to quit that it was, you know, for the best for both of us, uh, for our preserve our relationship, I guess that we were working on, um, is how I think it went down. Um, so I, you know, I started working another job. I think I got a job at, uh, office depot. And then I heard from my friend, John, uh, from JMU. He was like, Hey, we're, I'm in Richmond. Uh, should move down. Should you get a place. I was like, yes, let's do that. I'm on it. He's like, find a place. I was like, why don't you find a place? You live there. Um, but, uh, so I found a place, um, a, you know, four bedroom house, got two other guys in there. So I, you know, I'm 24 I'm in Richmond. You know, it's like bachelor pad. I, uh, decide I'm going to go back to school. I'm at the community college there. Um, I took a class in the summer. Things went really well. I got like a B plus and I took another semester Got like a four O. Things were going good. I reconnected with one of my best friends uh, from growing up. Um, it was Jack, and I uh, we're having a good time down there. It's things are going good, and it's two thousand eight, and so the I met this girl in one of my classes and we started seeing each other and within like three months uh, one day she kind of just sits me down she's like I'm pregnant you know I I was like floored because you know she was one of the first girls that I have even been with and I had zero knowledge of how uh, how any of that stuff works. You know, I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, so I was opted out of sex ed. Um, I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And you know, it's no excuse, but it I was unprepared. 100% unprepared. And... I had a panic attack, like a really bad panic attack. And that was my first inpatient uh, experience in Richmond. I spent, I just spent uh, one night there because I told him that I wanted to go home and I felt better. Because I had been cutting myself. Not to, uh, not to kill myself, but, um, Self-mutilation, self-harm. It's basically just like, for me, it was to feel pain so that I knew that I was alive. Uh, and so I, I get out of the hospital, and, and then within a couple of weeks, she tells me that she's had a miscarriage. Because um, I had taken her to the clinic a couple of times. There's something just was off about it. Never let me go inside. And um, this was, you know, 
she wouldn't be friends with me on Facebook. Kind of weird. So I don't. I still to this day don't know if she was telling the truth, and if she was telling the truth, I don't know if it was mine. It could have been, uh, but uh, I don't know for sure. And that really shook me. And then within. You know, within the next six months, um, I failed to pay my health insurance, and my health insurance lapsed. And then I tried to reapply for health insurance, and I was denied for pre-existing conditions. So the thing that I needed health insurance for now meant, uh, because it was a pre-existing condition, it meant that I couldn't get health insurance for it. Um, so... From 2009 to 2013, I had no health insurance. Um, and my health care, well, my prescriptions at one point um, were about $1,000 a month. Uh, and obviously, when you um, have those kind of expenses, other things have to go. And usually... For me, it was obviously for, it was school, so no more school. It was no more. Um, you got to get a cheaper car. You got to get you know. You got to buy stuff from Costco in bulk. You know, ramen every night. Uh, so I started working part time. Then I think started like twenty five hours, then thirty hours. Uh, then stopped going to school because I bumped it up to 35 hours, then 40 hours. And then um, and then there was this period where I wasn't sure like how I was going to make ends meet. Um, period. And so I started going to like a free clinic type of clinic where it's first come first serve. Uh, the doctor's only there on, you know, the second and third uh, Thursdays of the month. So you stand outside 5.30 in the morning, just waiting in line with, um, you know, people who are on the streets. Um, standing out there in 20 degree weather because that's the only option you have and when you need to save money you go oh I'm going to take this pill today and I'll take I'll just start taking them every other day which little bit of advice that's not how medications work don't do that um and eventually I was like, well, I got to get a real job with health insurance. Um, or at least, you know, I got to get some money going. And so I got a job. Uh, this place uh, was a textbook company where they buy and sell used college textbooks. Uh, and I, it was, you know, it was a management job, a management job. I was a store manager. So I felt, you know, all right, well, this is like a real job. And 
I was thrown into I was thrown to the wolves basically. Um there was they should have had two managers and I'm working on average sixty hours a week. Sometimes eighty five or ninety. Basically I was the only person who had a key, so and the store hours is like eight to eight. Seven days a week. <laughs> uh and then sometimes it was eight to ten. So it was, uh, uh, you know, for somebody who's not medicated properly, is not really in treatment. Um, I remember I would get off work and I didn't have time to go grocery shopping. Uh, so for six months, I would go to 7-Eleven on my way home and I would buy like some and those hot, like the hot food that they have, like buffalo wings or mm-hmm. whatever that stuff is. You know, I buy a twelve pack of beer, um, and I would go home. And I would eat, and I would drink all the beer, and I would stand on my eighth floor balcony, and just dream about, you know, the day that I would have the guts to jump. Um, it was not a good time for me. It was probably one of my darker periods of my I after almost a year working there I just quit I was like no I'm not doing this thing I remember it was right after Christmas Christmas uh, I drove all the way back up to Maryland um, because we were open on Christmas Eve and we were open on the 26th and I drove up, uh, hung out, and had to drive back. My car broke down, and I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, I told my parents, I was like, I'm coming home. I am, can't do this. So I went back to Maryland, moved in with my parents. At the age of, see, I was 28, 27 or 28. And they were in the middle of a bankruptcy. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why they couldn't help me with my, uh, with my meds and stuff as much as they probably wanted to. Um, and so... It didn't get better for me. It got worse. I started to do more drugs, drink more. My first, had my first like long inpatient day. I was in for like a week at a hospital, psychiatric hospital. Baltimore and and then pretty quickly it was another week and then another week and then I was also in outpatient programs they call day hospitals where essentially you go in the morning and then kind of like school for crazy people <laughs> School for crazy people, yeah. You go at eight 
and then you know you leave around three or four in the afternoon um and you come back the next day you do that for a couple of weeks um very very effective uh but definitely reminded me of like going to school uh there so around this time um i while everything is spiraling out of control i'm stealing money from my parents when they don't have any money i'm stealing drugs from them I decide uh, the Sandy Hook shootings happen. And I'm just listening to the news and to the radio and YouTube. And people just keep talking about crazy people. Oh, it's these crazy people. I watch out for these crazy people. And that really bothered me. Like, I'm a crazy person. I don't go shooting schools up. And I, uh, so I decided I wanted to start a nonprofit. So I started a nonprofit um, that was dedicated to mental health awareness. And we focused on you know, digital media, so social media and all that kind of stuff for the new generations, millennials, younger. And I got some decent attention for it Baltimore Sun NPR I was asked to join the board of directors for a uh, another nonprofit and then you know during this whole time I'm 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 trying to figure out what's going on and I'm not work. I'm not working, so I turn my illness into a job. I I do all the research that I can. I'm good at research, um, so I just start collecting information, collecting data. Even on myself, there's you know an app on a on a phone where you track your moods every day. You can track all kinds of different stuff, your sleep patterns, what you ate. Well, it's all data. I met a couple people through my nonprofit that helped me to find some resources. Two, two people in particular who also have bipolar disorder who are uh, both authors. They're very, very smart people. And so... I end up uh, getting in touch with Hopkins, Johns Hopkins uh, University. Well, not university, the hospital. And they do a fantastic job with mood disorder research and treatment. And so I do a uh, evaluation with them. And normally with psychiatrists, you get about 15 minutes. Um, whether you're seeing them the first time or the 150th time. About 15 minutes, you get you know, the same questions every time. But this was very special because they 
I want you to gather all of your documentation, all of your information. So I, I think I, I literally sent them probably about a whole ream of paper of, <laughs> of records. Uh, they also have you bring people who know you the best so they can provide context for your illness. And I, uh, we spent about an hour and 45 minutes with this woman, uh, this doctor. And at the end of it, she said, um, yes, Jared, you're bipolar. You have bipolar disorder. Uh, you have bipolar 2. I was like, bipolar 2. <laughs> um, and she was like, these meds here that you're on, um, you don't take them anymore. Here are the, here's the, here are the ones that you want to be on. I've, I've been on those meds ever since. And I now understand that there are multiple different types of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 1, bipolar 2. Uh, there's cyclothymia. Uh, so there's not otherwise specified. There's a lot of different diagnoses. So, um, and they're different. They're very different. Uh, and one of the big things that I found out was that... Uh, traditional antidepressants actually make bipolar disorder worse. Mm. And I'd been on them for a decade. (laughs) Uh, So after that, um, I mean, that was huge. That's just yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was my um, reaction. I think that was my parents' reaction too. They were like, like, what the, what the, you know, what the heck? Like, how did we not know this? Um, so I, uh, after Hopkins, they, things didn't really, didn't really get better. Um, they started to, uh, the seed was planted for things to get better. After after that, I, I I entered into a very very lengthy depression. Even though I had, um, even those those medications had, you know, I was on good medication, was in therapy. Um, there is still the weight of my depression was still so great that even those those tools could not support that weight. Um, the thing about psychiatric medications is this, is that they're not designed to bring people out of symptoms. They're designed to keep people out of symptoms. Mm. So once you're in there, and once you're deep in there, there aren't a whole lot of treatments that are designed to get you out. And so I I was in a very, very deep depression for about six months. Um, So much so that um, the board board of directors position that I had been offered, I, I resigned. 
I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't even drinking uh, or doing drugs or anything. I, I wasn't doing anything. I just didn't leave the house. Mm-hmm. I would... Uh, I would try to sleep as long as I could. Sometimes um, I slept 16 or 18 hours a day. And I would try to time it so that I was awake at night so that I didn't have to interact with anybody. And I would be able to watch two or three movies in a row, go back to bed. Um... There's something in mental illness called suicidal ideation. Uh, Suicidal ideation is that you fantasize about death. You fantasize about not existing. And that's on the road towards being actively suicidal. And I had had a lot of experience with suicidal ideation, but very little experience with actual actual suicide, even though I had attempted suicide twice before that. Uh, And this time, because of my two failures before, I knew that there are certain types of, or certain methods which are more effective than others. One of and there is a information online, unfortunately, like that that you can you can get where you know the lethality of various methods described in detail. So I decided I was that if I was going to do it, I was going to do it right. Um, I knew where I was going to get a firearm. I knew that I did not want to do it in my parents' home because I knew that it would permanently traumatize them um, even more than just, you know, the act itself. Uh, So I knew that I was going to do it in my car. I knew where I was going to take my car. There's a little spot off this back road um, near this place that we used to live. And I figured, you know, leave a note so they would, you know, they wouldn't find me like days later dinking up a car (laughs) Um, but then I guess I'm not sure why I decided to put it on pause for a second maybe it was just desperation and that I knew that there was something there's one last thing that I hadn't tried yet Um, there's a, a one of the one of the people that I had met that became sort of mentors for me that I'd mentioned earlier um, in regards to bi- my bipolar disorder um, was uh, somebody who had a lot of experience with what's called um, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. Um, most people are going to be familiar with it through the name electroshock therapy. And probably everyone right now who knows about that is thinking of one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, because it's like the one of the only examples of you know that the, the public can draw on. Um, but I, I will point out that that uh, depiction is incredibly inaccurate. Um, 
especially uh, in how how they perform it uh, in a modern context. Um, so essentially, um, just to give a little background, ECT, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, is a treatment, the most effective treatment for um, bringing people out of uh, intense symptoms of, of either depression, uh, mania, or psychosis. And there is a very high success rate. I think it's like 80% that it's in terms of its success rate. So um, I, I underwent um, a series of treatments. Uh, the treatments usually are 8 to 10 treatments every other day. You're under full anesthesia, and they give you a little electric shock to your temple, one or two. There's unilateral and bilateral. Bilateral meaning two sides of your head. That's what I did. A little bit more intense. Um, and it produces a full grand mal seizure. Um, and But you're anesthetized. And you're on anti-seizure medication, so you don't really, it doesn't look like a seizure. And then you wake up, you don't even experience anything. Uh, but, um, so I did eight treatments, and the side effects are pretty hefty. Uh, the, there is memory loss around the event itself, around the treatments. So basically, like, you know, for me, I don't remember, I pretty much remember nothing of January and February of 2016. Um, pretty much nothing. Um, I have this one little flash of memory because my last day of the treatment was on my birthday, my 32nd birthday, and I remember there being a piece of pie because I told my mom I didn't want cake because mm. I don't like cake and I don't like birthdays. Because you don't, you know, for somebody who who lives with depression or a mental illness, birthdays and holidays are often very difficult because they're a reminder of what your life is and what it's not, a reminder of time passing. Um, so I did eight treatments. It's called an, an acute series treatment short and uh amazingly um i came out of those um and i wasn't depressed anymore been six months and it it blew like it totally blew me away um i I think me and my parents and my family too all had this collective sigh of relief like, oh, it worked. Didn't, didn't you at some point, Jared, describe one day you kind of either woke up or just realized that something's different, something's changed, something's changed? Oh, yes. Yeah, de- most definitely. Um, so I don't know where it happened, but, um, and I will, you know, preface this by saying that my experiences with ECT are not um, common, um, but I 
the only way that I can explain is the one one treatment I went under one person and I came out somebody else. And I don't mean that like you know, I'm a different person now because I cut my hair and I um I got a new job. I mean I mean the metaphor that I've used in the past is that if your mind is like a house then what I experienced is that um, the outside of the house remained the same, but some somebody came in, renovated everything, knocked down all the walls, changed the floor plan, redecorated, changed the paint, everything different. Overnight. Overnight, yep, yeah. Uh, and there's this odd feeling of, you know, being in an unfamiliar space uh, where it's almost like, you know, if you live somewhere for long enough and you wake up in the middle of the night, um, you can navigate your way without the lights to, you know, to the light switch or to the bathroom or, or whatever it is. But in this case, it was like, you know, you reach out for the, to turn the lights on or you reach for the handle of the bathroom door or whatever and, and there's nothing there and not only that you're falling forward down a flight of stairs now um so it's very disorienting there's nothing that i've ever experienced that is that's like it not even doing psychedelics Hmm. so i then did what's called continuous ect which is called cect very good acronym um, and so I did another seven treatments and the idea there is that you do it like once a week and once every two weeks, once a month and you slowly taper down. And that's in addition to the eight you've already done. Correct. Okay. Um, and, uh, just to clarify, Jared, the, the original eight ECT treatments, what was the time frame for those? How long did that take? Uh, well, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So it was just straight. Yep. Day after day. Yeah. Okay. Um, I may have missed one and they moved it back. I, I don't know. Like mm-hmm. I said, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, so, um, so I eventually decided that I just was not going to be, do- I, I didn't want to do any more treatments because. Um, something had changed, and I remember thinking to myself that when I first started the treatments, uh, and they would put me under, I would sort of in my mind, I'm thinking like, "Yes, bring on the sweet darkness." <laughs> um, but by you know, by the time I was a couple treatments into the continuous ECT, where I, I would have these panic attacks where I was terrified that I was not going to wake up um, or that I was going to wake up and not, and there would be nothing left of who I used to be. And that's when I kind of realized that, you know, I, I had reattached myself to the idea of life. You didn't want to die at this point. Right, yeah. That's huge. <laughs> exactly. Um, you wanted I, to live. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I, it was a weird transition, even you know, for somebody, because when you get, when you're in a mental state for long enough, you get used to being there, mm. and even if you're making a positive change, it still can be uncomfortable. For sure. So. So I did 15 treatments, and then I was like, "All right, I'm not. I don't want to do any more." And I came out of it, and I said to myself. Well, what now? What do I what do I do now? Um, how long is this going to last? Because the research shows that you know, four out of five people relapse in the first in the first year, and that number only goes up after that. Um, and a relapse would would mean that you would relapse back into those same symptoms that you were in before. Um, they might not be as worse, but but you relapse. Um, I, I was like, well, I can't wait to see what happens. I got to do something. And so I was like, well, what do I want to do? And I remember I, I, I keep a journal. I've been keeping a journal since I was like a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And I remember writing in the journal cause I've looked back at it multiple times. Um, asking myself, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? What can I accomplish? And so I wrote this list of stuff out that I wanted to try to do where essentially it was the answer was I want to pick up where I'd left off all those years before when I was 19 years old. And I was like, well, first I got to test this, this out. I got a, got a new set of hardware. I got to see what it can do. So I got a part-time job and I, and it went really, really well. It was the first job that I ended up leaving like a year and a half later um, where the, the management or ownership like actually was like, hey, come back anytime. You know, um, that was not the case in a lot of to past end on, jobs. Yeah. To end on good terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so the job was going well. So I was like, all right, well, I got to do this school thing because if I don't, if I don't do, if I don't finish this, I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be satisfied. Uh, something I got to do. So I took a class, summer class at a community college. I uh, got an A. Um, I was super excited about that. I was like, all right, well, that went really well. Well, let's push, you know, push my luck. Um, let it ride, kind of. And I was like, let's do, uh, how about finish my associate's degree? And I knew that I only needed one semester worth of classes, the community college. Uh, so I, I did that and uh, ended up getting a 4.0. And it was around that time that during that semester that I was like, it's been six months. And I've had zero symptoms. That I mean, and for me, that never happened. You know, for me, it was six to eight weeks, tops. At, you know, at the best. Was that just like that realization? Six months, just I guess, almost like cathartic, just crazy. It, well, yeah, it was. I mean, it was definitely crazy. It was like because it was something that was so far outside of the norm, 
that even my parents were like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I was starting to get this, like, I was like, am I cured? Like, what happened? Like, I think my mom was even like, is he better now? Like, it was kind of this feeling like we, do, we were, we didn't want to like embrace it. Because you, you were afraid it would come back. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was yeah. just like, no way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, like, when is this going to come back? Did, did that worry you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, that's something that I'm still, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I talked to my therapist about that like just like two or three weeks ago. Is this, this idea that, you know, I've been waiting for this inevitable collapse. Um, and that was, you know, three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Eventually, uh, about halfway through the semester, it did come back. Depression showed up. Um, but what was amazing about it was that it was the severity of the symptoms was nothing like what it was before. It was there, and I actually felt kind of better about like knowing where it was like okay i see you you know Mm. you can't sneak up on me and uh but it was like you know normal depressive episode for me would have been minimally 10 days this was didn't even classify as a depressive episode because a depressive episode has to to last at least five days or at least a week actually technically i think it's two weeks i don't know but um but this was like three days in and out. And I was like, is this the new normal? And I was like, if it is, you know, the game's changed. Um, so I was like, I got a 4-0. Graduated summa cum laude with my, uh, at, uh, at the community college. I was like, let's let's do it like i'm gonna finish my bachelor's finally so i applied to two different schools got into both of them Mm. um both good schools and i went with the one that could graduate me in three semesters instead of four Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um when i was there um i uh met some really really amazing people it's it's different being a, a non-traditional student. You appreciate your your time in school better because one, you're paying for it, and two, you're you're you know closer in age. Well, you can relate more to your professors. Uh, and one of my professors ended up becoming one of my mentors and friends. I took a uh, a class with him initially uh, on introduction to Judaism and I initially went into the class thinking to myself I was like I want to learn what the Jews think about the Christians because the Jews have you know kind of been treated pretty shitty by them Um, so I wanted to be like you don't like these people either do you you know I was like because I don't like them you, you definitely shouldn't like them. Um, and uh, I was really amazed. Um, I think that where I'm at, you know, 
um, now uh, in terms of how I how I believe and how I uh, interact with people of other faiths are, you know, is pretty heavily influenced by this this guy. Uh, because when I talked to him and I asked him about it, he was incredibly gracious about it and uh, and actually was pointing out things that he admired. And I was like, wait a minute. What are you... I'm like, no, that's not what you're supposed to say. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I ended up taking another three classes with him, two of them being independent studies. Um, ended up spending time in his home with his family. Uh, learned a lot about Judaism. Fairly knowledgeable, uh, at least for the average, like, person who grows up in a Christian, at least. Uh, and what was amazing was that as I was healing from these treatments, from the years and years and years of of being symptomatic and, you know, being depressed and all the stuff surrounding it is that I began to investigate the idea that belief in itself is valuable and that uh, atheism, uh, of which I would have described at that point and before that, is actually... Uh, harmful because people who have nothing to believe in tend to be more susceptible to a mental health problem. There's a relationship there that I'm going to get into the details of it, but um, but there there is a powerful connection between what I experienced with my treatments and and understanding other people's beliefs, which led me to the place where um, I began to reevaluate my own belief, or at least to look at the idea of belief in a, in a fresh sort of way. Um, and the more... The more research that I've done on the mind, on neurology, on and on various religions, um, I've uh, come to realize that you know belief is an important part of how the human mind operates, and it's you know it's a it's a genetic you know it's a biological thing you know that. There's a reason why our ancestors survived because they, when they heard something in the bushes, they believed that there was something there, and they were the ones that ran away first. It's that simple. Like, uh, so whatever that mechanism is, um, I was wondering, like, what is, how is that, operate? Like, how is it working in my own head? 
in me. Um, and I, I had to look, and this was a very recent uh, observation, is that I've been trying to explain the success of the treatments that I have um, because I've never relapsed. Um, nearly everybody relapses. The profound shift in identity uh, uh, is unique. The fact that like I felt like a different person, the fact that some of my memories I associate are, are, are just gone, other memories um, I have no emotional connection to. Uh, it's like I'm thinking somebody else's memories. Um, As if they're just like data. Yeah, it's just like you're looking at somebody else's home movies. You're like, who is that person? <laughs> mm. um, so all these phenomena are, are, are sort of led me to want to learn like what, what is going on? What happened in my head? Uh, and the, I've now like contacted and gone back and forth with some of the, the, the leading minds in this field, um, in the world. And the answer I got was, we don't know. Um, and as much as I hate to admit it, uh, the, if you were to describe an event to someone and you were to say, this particular event changed my life, changed everything about me, changed the way I see the world, um, how I interact with the world, and it's unexplainable by science. What would be the word that you would use to, you know, to describe that event? Uh, my dad was like, well, that's easy word is miracle the word the little word you're looking for is miracle um you know and i uh, i cringe when i hear that word um because for a long time i've i've been very angry about the church because it failed me Christianity failed me. Um, it didn't have an explanation. Didn't have um, an avenue to get better. Didn't help my family. Uh, somehow they all, some well, some of them, you know, clung to their faith. But I mean, their faith is nothing like it was when this all started uh, sixteen years ago. And I think each per, each one of them would admit that this, my illness, changed them. I developed, my sister, one of my sisters, my younger sister, we developed a metaphor um, for my illness and, and my family. And essentially, it goes like this, is uh, is that, our house is on fire, and I am stuck in my room, and uh, the door is locked, and I can't get out. 
And my parents are trying desperately to open the door to help me to get out, to get me out of the house. And, uh, and of course, they're very focused on that. And my older sister, she, uh, very smart and, uh, but she's able to get out of the room and she runs out of the front of the house and gets out. And then, um, and then she spends, uh, she dedicates her life uh, or spends her, uh, a lot of her life, um, learning to understand house fires. Sister is a, uh, a therapist. <laughs> um, my younger sister, you know, is, uh, uh, she's, she's locked in her room and then my younger brother's locked in his room. My younger brother, he's very independent. He opens up the window and jumps out the second floor and takes off and he's fine. And my younger sister, I, you know, not, not at any fault of anybody else, but, uh, they end up, my parents end up getting me out cracking the door just enough for me to get out and we all rush out and everybody forgets about my younger sister and house burns down on her. Um, I think it's a very apt before. Um, but it's only now am I beginning to see like some healing taking, uh, Taking effect, I guess, you know, taking shape. Uh, I mean, when you when you deal with something like this for so long, it only you know can only like affect the people around you, the people that care about you the most. And even though like I I know it's not my fault, still it's hard to uh, see what that did to those people. I just, the only thing I can do really, the only thing I do now is, is just help, help in that healing process. Be there for them the way that they were there for me. Mm -hmm. You know, Jaron, as I look back through your story, I, I see some parallels that takes place here. And first I want to go back and with the whole church thing, what could have been different there? What should have been different in that whole experience as a younger man with church that may may have changed something, may have changed the trajectory of your life going forward? What should have been better? What should have been different? Well, I mean, I can only speak for maybe what would have helped me. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would have to say that there would have needed... <laughs> Maybe there would have needed to been a gifted program in the church, um, the way that there was in schools. When we were, uh, you know, I was growing up in elementary school and middle school. Uh, they would pull us out of uh, of the class, you know, once a week, and we'd spend the day doing other stuff. So you know, I was building bridges and rocket ships, and uh, you know, learning about physics when I was you know eight years old. And that kept me interested. 
So I don't know if that's something that could, that model could work in the church where it's like, well, this, this young person or this person in general, you know, they're, you know, maybe they're on a, a different level than everybody else. They're, they're asking deeper questions. They're asking more technical questions. Um, and then have a, an avenue for, for, and people who are able to engage with, with them. I, I, I know that if I had had time to spend one-on-one with, you know, somebody with a, uh, a degree, you know, se- you know, from seminary, like I, I would have, even if, you know, even in middle school and high school, like I would have, I would love that because it, I could have at least engaged with somebody who was my intellectual equal. So this wasn't necessarily an issue. You weren't getting answers to the questions that you were asking. It's not that they weren't there. It just wasn't at a level that that filled you, that satisfied what you were looking for. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's very that's very fair. Um, because the thing about like intellectual pursuit and and the church is that they often don't meet at all. Um, and, and there is a whole part, a whole another world surrounding the study of the Bible, which is incredibly fascinating, mm-hmm. which um, I think can be u- used as a tool instead of uh, sort of shying away from it, which then most people, I mean, I think if you speak, speak to most atheists, most Christian atheists, people who were Christians and became atheists, because there actually are atheists who were other religions and became, uh, um, they would all say that, you know, the information that they were given was inadequate. And so they had to go get the information on their own. So there was nobody there to put that information in a context, say, okay, yeah. So the, you know, the gospel narratives of, you know, the, uh, crucifixion are all different. Why are they different? Here's yes. the context. So you weren't getting those answers that at the time you were interpreting because you weren't getting them, there wasn't an answer for it. Yeah, there wasn't an answer or they were holding answers from me. You know, they're all liars. Mm. Yeah. That would be an easy conclusion. What what I kind of got from, from, from that part of the conversation was it, it's as if just the often mechanical procedures of the church dictated, oh, well, Jared can't take the creation class because he's not old enough and blah, 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 because the books, you know, our made-up book, rather, says to do it this way, rather than to personally engage, like you said, almost like if there was something for gifted people. But that could really just boil down to, is the church even being personable at all? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I think in order to understand um, people's gifts, you have to, understand them like you have, yeah you have to put the effort into not just giving them here here's the uh here's the formulaic sort of rubric that i'm going to give everybody like that's not we're individuals like the way that i see god is different than the way that you see it you know even even for people who fall under the same umbrella you know it's different but mm-hmm. you know you got to approach it differently. I want to ask you, Jared, there was this place that stands out to me in your journey where you were on a retreat, 
and you went off the trail. You wanted to go on your own trail. You needed to get away from the group. And, and you came up with this ultimatum to God. Mm-hmm. Either show up or I'm walking. Do you think that maybe God did show up, but later or in a different way than you at the time was thinking he should have? Do you see or sense at this point in time is maybe in reflecting back now that in some sense you've had this reboot, maybe he was there. Maybe something was there that has brought me on this journey. And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but as I look through your story here and even your relationship as it was with your dad, you were angry at him at some point. You felt like he he wasn't checking he checked out on you, but then that changed too. Were you, were you angry and are you, is that anger, that kind of things like, because God didn't come and save you from this, that has, has that played a role in this perhaps to some degree? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, yes, definitely. Um, for a very, very, very long time, I was, angry, very angry at God, still believed in God. Mm-hmm. And I was angry because, like you said, I, I, they didn't save me. Mm-hmm. Why did you do this? You didn't save me. And I think there, I, there were a lot of relationships like that. Yeah. I had, you know, my dad, my mom, like I was angry, both of them for, a long time. I'm like, why did you give this to me? Why did I deserve this? Like, obviously they had no control over mm-hmm. any of this, but, um, but you know, I think the way I'm starting to look at this all now is, you know, it, it, and this really kind of just struck me literally just the second is, uh, um, like if you go back to the, you know, the moment that I that I had on the beach with mm-hmm. my with my friend John, um, is that maybe maybe God or whatever you want to call it, the divine you know force, <laughs> um, you know maybe that big circle that I drew was. ECT, and what if if God had or the divine had saved me in that moment that I was there on that path in the woods, then He would have been the one slashing that line across. Mm-hmm. I would never would have gotten there. Interesting. If you would have swam out to those boats that day, that night, what would have happened? I'm a pretty good swimmer. <laughs> uh, I, I probably would have got bored and then swam back. Is probably what would have happened um, after a hundred yards. Yeah, or about something. two or three hundred yards. I'm like, I never mind. I don't, Realizing I don't need to prove this. <laughs> yeah, they're much further out there than I thought. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it may not have ended up well. Yeah, it it certainly um, could could not have. But but you know. What I'm seeing now with all with all of this is is that the 
on the surface, this is all awful. Mental illness is awful. Mm -hmm. It's it destroys people, destroys family members. But in my case, a very unique case, there has been and there is now the opportunity for great healing to happen. And I've been given this very bizarre gift. I still don't understand what it is. I still don't understand why I was given it. But I just probably sounds strange, but I wouldn't change anything about it. About it. And and you know with other people that have been on this show have said the same thing and I think Steve and I even in our stories with our own version of suffering though very 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 different from yours would also say the same don't change it um, the big circle you drew I see in that your story itself to be told Really? Okay. All right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I like I like telling stories. I guess this is as good as a story as any. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent story. Yeah. And and in that, you know, uh, design out there on the beach in the sand there, it was about purpose. Mm-hmm. And that you had a purpose in life. And in, until that was met, fulfilled, it, there's no way you're going to die. At least that's how I... What about now? What's your purpose? I mean, you're sitting here, you're telling folks a story about your life that, that there are going to be pieces of it that people are going to identify with. And you go, oh my gosh, I, help me. What's your word to them? Um, tough question. I guess... I guess that you know that even even when you are in the darkest places there's still a chance for light and amazingly enough you know when you are in the dark the utter dark for long enough the tiniest flicker of light will look like a spotlight. Mm. So look, look for it. It'll, it'll be there. You just gotta, you gotta keep looking. Mm. Would you say that, but that when you see it, you've gotta want it? I think that the desire at least in, in, in sense of when dealing with mental illness. Desire is not necessarily the the thing that's going to make the difference. Mm -hmm. At least not yours. Often it's the desire of those around mm. who care. Gotcha. And 
if they, you know, if they're able to, if they want it bad enough, and you maybe get lucky a little bit, I think there is a little bit of luck hmm. involved in it. But you also said that, and you've asked people at Hopkins, the the guys in the know, what happened? And mm-hmm. the best they can come up with, it's a mystery. We don't know. So the question, as we kind of bring this to a landing here, is where does hope come from? <laughs> where does hope come you, from? Said a little bit earlier, it comes from belief. I th- I think, I think you're you're right. I think maybe maybe I'm right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Um, hope is something that is like a star. It you need all the pieces like. If you go back to the beginning of the universe, there's all this cosmic dust floating around. And then, as gravity affects it, everything is drawn together and under great pressure, strain, force, suddenly there's a spark. And there's a star. I think hope is a lot. There's a lot like that. You have to have the components for it to manifest itself because it's not something that you can force into being. Just Or manufacture yourself. Yeah, it happens. You yeah. know. But the, it does exist. The conditions have to be right. Yeah. And if they are right, then there's a good chance that you'll get a star. And in some cases, we call it a mystery. Yep. Great. Jared, this has been Luke. Or you got something on your mind? Um, reminded of a quote from my philosophy professor that was just about marveling and appreciating the mystery. That it's not always something to be figured out, but it is something to be marveled and wondered at, and that is a good thing. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. But what I've heard you say and allude to and even some of the things that you've told me recently is that maybe you're revisiting some of these things that or maybe even this God who you gave an ultimatum to in the past to show up or I'm walking maybe maybe you're circling back around to see if you missed him or he was there is that sort of true yeah, I th- I think so. I'm 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 thinking that maybe maybe I didn't have the right vocabulary when first time around. Maybe the language Christianity that I was given of Christianity as a whole was not the right language for me to be communicating with God or with the divine. Mm. It doesn't mean just because you can't understand somebody doesn't mean they're not there yeah so sometimes christianity just gives us boxes to check off and maybe he's a whole lot bigger than boxes 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Jared, any last thing you want to say as we depart tonight? Because this has been an incredible journey. And it's amazing that you could sit here and say, I wouldn't change a thing about it. I'm just thinking as I would. I, I'm not. <laughs> it's, the, it's the mystery. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess maybe one idea sort of wrap everything together, you know, is um, there's this guy. Um, his name is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He was Lord Rabbi Jonathan mm-hmm. Sachs. He was a head rabbi of the United Kingdom at, for, at one point. Um, and he gives this amazing uh, talk on the nature of suffering uh, and what its purpose is, and you know, sort of the idea of how. And it's a it's a question we all try to wrap our head. You know, how is God all good if everybody is suffering all the time? Um, and he points out something really interesting: that the Judaism is a religion of protest. That. Uh, um, the first Jew is is not not Noah or Adam, Abraham, who says, "No, God, I'm not going to do that." And it's that suffering that God puts him through that makes him special. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's an odd sort of gift, but when you look at like most stories of these amazing people like look at like Nelson Mandela suffering turns us in, in into something greater uh, i think somebody said uh suffering suffering makes us more noble mm. yes so, yeah that's probably my last idea like a crucible yeah. do you get do you get refined in the fire into a a greater material. Exactly. Yeah. Jerry, we want to thank you tonight for being a part of Restless, the podcast. This has been an in- fantastic journey that touched in a lot of areas that we just haven't heard yet. And, and we want to thank you for that. And, yeah. you know, please stay in touch and just let us know how this journey continues and in, in, the, in the words that you've said and even down the road, how that might reach out to folks just like yourself that are still somewhere in that darkness. Mm. Yeah. Does that sound fair? Yeah, definitely. Yes, it's great. It's been a marvel among marvels. (laughs) Thanks for being with us tonight. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Episode 9 of Restless the Podcast featuring Jared, titled Off the Trail. We here at Restless the Podcast have hearts restless to find the one who said, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For whom is your heart restless? And for today, who can give your heart the answers it seeks? Yeah.